Welcome to Technoviews, a new series of interviews and videos and podcasts with major figures in the humanities and social sciences on topics at the intersection between technology, society, and culture in Asia and the world. My name is Joseph Bosco, and I am a research associate at the Department of Anthropology at Washington University in St. Louis. The subject of today's podcast is genetically modified rice, especially golden rice. Our guest today is Glenn Davis Stone, Professor of Anthropology and Environmental Studies at Washington University in St. Louis. Professor Stone's research focuses on environmental anthropology, political ecology, food studies, and science and technology studies. He has conducted fieldwork among non-industrial farmers in West Africa, India, the Philippines, and North America, and he has been researching and writing on genetically modified crops since 2002 and was the author of a major review article in 2010 on the anthropology of genetically modified crops in the annual review of anthropology. Hello, Glenn. Welcome to Technoviews. Glad to be here. Let's start maybe by, could you tell us how you got interested in genetically modified crops? Most of my research had been um, on non-industrial agriculture, and I had studied agriculture in prehistoric North America, and I had also done a lot of work in Africa on non-industrial sustainable farming. And so I was interested in uh, non-industrial agriculture and agriculture in the global south, which initially seemed to have very little to do with the whole GMO debate. The first GM crops were, uh, uh, were introduced in 1994. That was a genetically modified tomato. And then very soon after that, the, the big hits of the GM crop world came out. Those were the herbicide-tolerant crops. That's especially Roundup-ready commodity crops. And the BT crops. Those are crops that contain, that produce an insecticide. And when those, uh, when foods based on those crops were first introduced into Europe, um, initially there were, there wasn't a major backlash, but by about 1997 or 1998, there was a major backlash. And the biotech industry realized that it had a real fight on its hands and it needed to come up with something that it hadn't really needed in North America, which was a compelling justification for why these technologies would be beneficial. And so the justification that they landed on was that these technologies were going to help feed people in the global south. They were going to help feed the world, and they were going to help farmers in the global south. And as that debate unfolded, it occurred to me that the people on one side of it, which were the people largely in the biotech industry, um, didn't really study farming in the global south, and they had a vested interest for depicting it in a certain way. And on the other side of the debate were largely activists who didn't so much study farming in the global south as simply take, take positions on it. And it seemed to me that there was a real gap there. Um, there was what we needed were people that actually studied agriculture in the global south uh, to wade into the debate and try to look at the question more broadly. So what happened to me was that I became increasingly convinced that this was an important topic and that somebody with my sorts of background uh, would, be, uh, would be helpful in the debate. And so I shelved a lot of the research I was doing on African agriculture. And as of the year 2000, started to 
started to try to intervene in the debate on GM crops, especially um, as they uh, would be used in and as they would affect uh, affect the global south. Yeah, so you've been um, uh, what well, you've written that you don't oppose general uh, GM crops in general. You wrote, "What I do oppose is the monolithic praising or condemning of GM crops, which is what we hear routinely from industry green critics." Uh, industry, green critics, and even well-meaning public sector biotechnologists who are poorly equipped to evaluate larger contexts of their inventions. Um, can you explain how you can be, uh, how can you oppose both praising and condemning GM crops? I mean, most people would assume you have to take one side or the other. Well, I think that view that you have to take one side or the other is a big problem. Um, the thing about GM crops is that they're all different. The only thing that GM crops share is that they've got some recombinant DNA in them, and, uh, in, which is not in itself a particularly important thing um, in terms of what the crops are and, and who they benefit and what sorts of promise they hold. Uh, they differ. Um, cassava is a completely different crop from soybean. Um, um, nutritional enhancement is a completely different sort of way of changing a crop from making it herbicide tolerant. Um, the problem to me is that people like to lump uh, the crops all in together. And that lumping uh, doesn't work very well if you want to really try to understand them. What the lumping works well for is if you're in a big brawl and you're trying to promote GM crops in general and you're trying to denigrate the critics, or if you're trying to fight against GM crops in general and you want to denigrate the, the biotechnologists. So you've, you've mentioned two different types of GMOs, the uh, resistance to pests or viruses, or, you know, insects or viruses, um, and the ones that are tolerant to pesticides. Do, or do you see though that as the major division between the types of uh, GMOs? Uh, I see those two as sort of going together. I mean, the vast majority of GM crops in the world have got one of those two technologies in them. And in fact, uh, the great majority of crops simply have got one technology in them, which is herbicide tolerance. And most commonly, um, it is, uh, it's tolerance to, um, to Roundup. Although there are now other, uh, there are other kinds of technologies around that are resistant to other herbicides. But the latest reports show that of all of the GM acres in the world, 88% of them contain the, one of these uh, herbicide tolerant traits. So basically, the technology has been used to make herbicide-tolerant crops. Um, and whether or not that is a beneficial thing or, uh, or a negative thing is, is debated. There certainly are some indications that in some places, insecticide use um, has gone down. Um, and that's because of the BT crops. There's also evidence that herbicide use has gone up. So the actual impacts of this are... Um, are, are not entirely clear. But I see those two technologies as going together. Those are the big industrial technologies. There are a lot of other things that could be done with GM technologies, and you hear about these a lot. Uh, but for the most part, they haven't been uh, commercialized or have been commercialized only on a really tiny scale. So it seems to me that every time you read an article about GM crops, they mention golden rice as if that's a as if, as if that's a really major use of, of GM technologies. And it's not. Uh, Golden Rice was one very small project that they've been working on for several decades. And I happen to think it was a good idea at the outset, but it doesn't work yet. 
And there are a lot of other things that uh, that could be done with the technology that haven't been done with it. So to me, the big division is between the big uh, commercialized industrial technologies, which is mainly herbicide tolerance and secondarily BT, and then all these other things that are talked about but actually have had a, played an extremely tiny role in the world of GM agriculture. You say they played a role, but they would be more, they'd have more promise. Is that what you mean? I think some of them do have more promise, yeah. I mean, the the uh, the promising GM crop that got me interested in um, in this in the first place, or one of the ones that got me interested in the first place, was genetically modified cassava. And cassava is not a big industrial crop. And unlike herbicide-tolerant soybeans, which is the biggest GM crop in the world by far, which is a big commodity crop that's used mainly for for feed, you know, as, as a fodder crop. Um, cassava is a food crop and it's a great crop for the poor. So if you want to have a conversation about what kinds of GM crops could actually benefit people in the global South uh, in terms of feeding people and also benefit farmers in the global South, cassava is a great place to start. And um, cassava's got a lot of wonderful advantages for the poor. It, it grows in crappy soil. It's not input intensive. It's very uh, non-demanding in terms of labor. Uh, it can be eaten or sold, which is a very important kind of flexibility for uh, for for small scale farmers. Um, the fact that it's not very labor demanding means it's a great crop for women because women do a lot of farming in the global south, but frequently have got less control over labor than men do. So for all of these reasons, um, cassava is a great crop for the poor and for the hungry in the global south. Uh, but it does have some problems that, in theory, could be remedied through uh, genetic modification. Um, it's got major problems with being attacked with viruses, and their new viruses are spreading across Africa and are reducing um, yields of cassava. And another thing is that its nutritional content is really quite low. It's just basically starch. Now, it's not really the job of, of the starch to provide full nutrition in Africa. That comes from the, the sauces that usually go with the starch. Nevertheless, if you could improve the nutritional quality of cassava, I think it would be a really wonderful thing. So both of those things can be tackled with genetic modification. You can put um, added nutritional quality into crops with genetic modification, and you can introduce virus resistance. So um, that was the crop that got me really fascinated and actually led me to take a leave from my university for a semester and work at a laboratory here in St. Louis that was working on genetically modified cassava. And they were working both on the virus resistance part and on the nutritional enhancement part. Um, so I thought that was an exciting direction to be going in. Um, and I still think it was a really, really good idea. I'm slightly troubled by the fact that they've been working on it for a long time. Um, in fact, when I worked with them in the year 2000, they already had been working on genetically modified cassava for several years. Now it's 2018, and they're probably still a few years away from having anything that, that could be put into farmers' fields. So it's taken a discouragingly long amount of time. Having said that, um, I think it's it's a great idea, and uh, it's uh, it's something that we should contrast 
to the major GM crops like uh, GM soybeans. But in GMO debates, things get thrown in together, um, and people are, are slow to make that sort of contrast. Did um, did you learn anything, you know, specifically from your? Um, I'm curious about your experience working in a lab. How did that influence your research? Well, I learned uh, a lot about how biotech actually works in the lab, and I I was learning. I guess one way of putting this would be that I was learning about the exception that proves the rule. I was working in a lab at the Danforth Plant Science Center, which has since been um, disbanded. But they were um, they were a lab that was not working on a crop that was going to be a moneymaker. Uh, they were working on a crop that basically would benefit farmers in Africa. Um, and furthermore, it's a crop that's reproduced vegetatively, so you wouldn't even be able to sell seeds. In other words, once the GM cassava was out there, farmers would just cut branches of it off and pass it around for free. So <clears throat> that's different than most GM crops for sure. Um, and this lab was doing the whole process of working on, uh, of developing a GM crop. That is, they were doing the basic research and they were also uh, doing the regulatory science. So you had people who were molecular biologists and tissue culture specialists who were, you know, flying over to Africa with plants to try to try to run tests in Kenya and things like that. So I found the whole the whole project really fascinating. Um, but this, I was working in a lab that was of uh, the Danforth Center was right across the street from the Monsanto Corporation. Um, and to me, I was constantly struck by the profound differences between what they were doing and what they were doing across the street at Monsanto. Um, although the people at Monsanto were very quick to, to blur the boundaries and say, well, it's all GMOs. But the plant center is still there, isn't it? They're still, they're still doing research on the cassava. Yeah, yeah. The plant, the Danforth Plant Science Center is still very much there. It's grown and is, is thriving as a scientific institution. But it's got a whole bunch of labs within it. And so oh. when I was working with them, I think there were nine labs. And one of them was the one that was uh, working on the GM cassava. There still is research going on on the GM cassava there. It's still making progress, and I, I certainly wish it well. So you've written a lot about this polarization. I mean, what what do you see causing this at the at the root of the the polarization on GMO? Well, at the root of it is the fact that there really is a lot at stake. <laughs> um, people are are quick to downplay the importance of GM crops, and you hear things like, "Well, we've been genetically modifying crops for millennia. This is the same thing, except more precise." Um, but that's just uh, that's silly, actually. Um, the idea of corporately owned patented technologies being used to, to change crops at the genetic level um, is a very, very big deal. It's a big deal in terms of how science works. It's turned out to be a big deal in terms of the relationship between the corporate sector and the academy. Uh, it's turned out to be a big deal in terms of international trade issues. Um, it was one of the factors behind the, the advent of the WTO in 1995. Um, so anyway, there really is a lot to debate here, and there are some very profoundly different visions about how about how agriculture should work. And so um, on top of that, this has all arisen during an era of sort of the era of Fox News. And it seems to me that the whole it's an era in which uh, exasperation has been industrialized. That's the way I like to think of it. 
And so people who may have started off with legitimate disagreement about what the role should be of patented technologies in food production um, find themselves quickly moving from just a disagreement uh, to a shouting match and threats, you know, calling each other murderers and, and so on and so forth. It's gotten even worse in the era of Twitter. I mean, this was around <clears throat> even before Twitter came along. Um, there were forces that very quickly exacerbated and amplified these um, differences. But now with Twitter, you find that um, when when an article comes out that uh, that raises some questions about GMOs or that uh, that supposedly shows a triumph of GMOs, um, it's immediately retweeted over and over again, and, and it goes into the echo chamber. So I guess the way it all fits together is there really is a lot to fight about, and the fight is unfolding in an era that tends to amplify fights. So how uh, do you as a scholar navigate between these polarized positions? Do you worry about attacks uh, on you when you write? Uh, do you find everyone's angry at you now? Well, no, not everyone. <laughs> it, it's actually hard. You know, it's much easier to be involved in the world of GMOs if you pick a side um, and then you you agree with everything that comes out on your side and you retweet it and you disagree with everything on the other side. Um, it's emotionally uh, much easier and you get lots of feedback and you ignore the negative you ignore the negative feedback and you relish the positive feedback. And frankly, that's what the majority, not all, but that's what the majority of people who intervene in GMO debates um, have done. So, uh, but I've never, I was never all that interested in, in doing that. Um, I, I write primarily for an academic audience, but I also have got some presence in the, in the blogosphere and do interviews and so on and so forth. And really try to take my job as as an, as an anthropologist seriously, and I my sense of my sense of that job is that I'm supposed to be uh, looking at things objectively. Now, I mean, I laugh when I say that because everybody claims to be objective, but um, <laughs> I would at least point to the fact that I have uh, where I have found in my research that um, there probably has been a boost in yields with GM crops. I I have reported that. Um, where there have been larger issues that are very troubling in terms of the long-term sustainability of GM crops, I have reported that, um, and I'm one of the I'm probably the only person who's had material that I've put out uh, be retweeted both by Monsanto and by Vandana Shiva. <laughs> so, um, at, at one, I mean, we're talking about bio problems that are fundamentally biological. So, what do you see as your anthropological contribution to this? basically, biological debate? Well, the first part of it is um, that there is a lot of uh, research being done now that, that studies science as a topic of study. And this is sometimes called um, science studies or science and technology studies. And it's, it's called the sociology of science and the history of science and the anthropology of science. Um, it, it's it's an area of research that spans a lot of different fields, and we in in anthropology have been maybe not the the leaders of it, but we certainly have been very involved in in the study of science as a social and political process. Um, and just in our department here at Washington University, my my colleague Talia Dan Cohen has a 
has a book coming out on uh, on synthetic biology labs in uh, at Princeton, and uh, I've written a bunch of things about uh, about the way the GM industry works and about the way ec- the economics uh, economists who study it work. So what I'm saying is, on one hand, we study this the scientific process um, as a subject. The other thing that we do is we, you know, if you want to talk about how GM crops are affecting the global south, in anthropology, we tend to be pretty good at actually going into the global south and going into the villages where the farmers are and looking up close at at how the crops are being accepted and understood and used and what sort of impacts they're having. So I, I picked um, India as a primary place to um, to do research. That was back in 2000 because uh, it was such a, in the first place, it it was clear that it was going to be a a very important arena for GM crops because um, it it has so many hundreds of millions of small farmers and a lot of them are growing cotton and BT cotton was the crop that was um, ready to make its move into, into the country. And at the same time, there were um, uh, were major um, anti-GMO movements there, and I wanted to see how the how the clash would uh, how the clash would unfold. So, as an anthropologist, I have spent a lot of time in the villages, looking at um, at the larger context of these crops. So, on one hand, I've actually looked at things like yields and pesticide use, and so on. But even more interesting than that are questions like how has the arrival of this technology affected indigenous knowledge. And so I'm I'm looking both at agricultural questions, but also at um, at some of the broader questions of the of the context of of these technologies. Okay, you, you've also studied um, heirloom rice among the Ifugao in the Philippines. What's significant about heirloom rice? Well, the studies of heirloom rice came about as part of my project of looking at golden rice, and uh, golden rice is probably the most controversial and widely discussed GM crop there is. And it has been oftentimes, um, its proponents talk about it as if it were just sort of a global vitamin tablet. Uh, Wherever poor people are, they need to eat this rice and it will boost their vitamin A levels and it will prevent blindness and prevent death and, and so on and so forth. And as an anthropologist, um, I'm very interested in in how the crop would actually play out where it is actually going to play out, which turns out to be the Philippines. Golden rice is not being introduced into the global south in general. GM crops have to go through regulatory processes wherever they're going to be released. And so the the country where, where golden rice is being moved ahead is the Philippines, and that's largely because of the presence of Erie, which is the International Rice Research Institute, which is far and away the world's leading rice research institute, and it's south of Manila. And the Philippines also has got a, a national, uh, the Philippines Rice Research Institute, which is their national research facility, also a very sophisticated um, institute for studying rice. And so once Golden Rice got started uh, back, actually the early work was done in the, in the uh, 1980s, uh, but by the early 1990s, um, they had a, a proof of concept, sort of working copy of an early version of golden rice, and it got moved to Erie in, in the Philippines. And that is the country where 
um, they are developing the rice and where they're testing it. And that is the country where it will, if, if it is ever released, and I think it probably will be one day, um, that's the country where it, where it will be released. There's also some research that's being done in other countries. There's work going on in Bangladesh where they're doing some field tests. And there's been research going on in India and some other places. But but none of them are anywhere near as close to um, to having something in the field as as the Philippines. So the point of all this is that golden rice is not a story about the global south. And it's not a story just about, you know, hungry kids and malnourished kids. It's very much a story about the Philippines. So that was the point of my own research. I'm going to have this a multi-year project that was funded by the Templeton Foundation to look at golden rice by looking at the larger context of rice in the Philippines. So what we're not studying there is how golden rice is impacting health or how farmers are growing it because it hasn't been released yet. So those questions are all premature. But what I am looking at is a larger context into which golden rice is being developed. And it turns out that in the Philippines, um, there is a big story there that had to do with the Green Revolution. Uh, the Philippines is also the country that brought us Green Revolution rice back in the 1960s. Um, and part of the, the story of the Green Revolution was the development of, of what some people have called a placeless forms of crops. That is, crops that are wide adapted. They're not bred just to grow in the fields, say, in the Philippines, but they're bred to grow just about anywhere, as long as the field is provided with plenty of water and fertilizer. In other words, a sort of place-denying sorts of crops. Um, <clears throat> and that has provided a basis for what they've been doing with, with, with the, the golden rice there. And the golden trade is being put into these green revolution, these placeless green revolution varieties. So as long as we're in the Philippines and we're looking at these larger contexts of rice, um, I became fascinated by uh, this heirloom rice production scheme up in the Cordillera, where basically they are, rather than trying to deny the place of rice and make placeless rice, they are encouraging people to keep growing these heirloom rices up there in the terraces, um, and they're trying to sell the rice very much on the basis of its place. It is sold explicitly as um, heirloom seeds grown on the terraces um, in, in the Philippines. So it's um, in many ways, it's the opposite sort of a rice from the Green Revolution and very much the opposite of, of the golden rice, uh, which um, and ironically, the, the very institute that developed the uh, Green Revolution rices, Erie, which is the same institute that's developing the golden rice, um, has gotten to be very involved in trying to promote heirloom rice. So the point of all this is that it's, it's a mistake to take a crop like golden rice and look at it just as a placeless, countryless vitamin tablet for undernourished kids. Um, golden rice is being developed in the Philippines. It's probably in the Philippines where it will be released. And um, part of what we have to do is look at the larger context of, of rice in the Philippines. Well, this last question is not about rice, but about humans, uh, genetically modified humans. I wonder if you have any thoughts about the recent announcement about the use of CRISPR technology in China on two babies to make them resistant to HIV infection. 
Are we on the doorstep of designer babies? Should people be concerned about the use of this technology in humans? Yes and yes. <laughs> um, we definitely are on the doorstep of designer babies. Um, and assuming that this um, scientist has done what he says he has done, and I think he probably has, uh, they are, in a sense, designer babies. And whether or not we should be concerned about it, absolutely. Um, I mean, where we're probably heading here is, uh, is is genetic tourism. There's been something going on for a long time that we call medical tourism, which is people going to other countries to get medical procedures done, either because they're not available in their own country or because they're done more cheaply or differently in other countries. Um, <clears throat> and what we're what we're almost certainly going to be heading towards is an era in which people go to another country, which is likely to be China in the future, um, to get the uh, the genes in their uh, in their in their forthcoming babies tweaked a bit. And I think we should be profoundly concerned about this, and but not for the reasons that a lot of people cite. I don't. I think it's a mistake for us just to have a knee-jerk reaction, say, oh, no, this is like Frankensteinism. Um, uh, this is a horrible technology. We have to do anything to block it. The technology itself doesn't scare me so much as our inability to, to have the debate that we need to have about it. We need to have a serious debate about this because it is, as the biotechnologists point out, a technology that could, in theory, prevent some genetic diseases that they sometimes, I think, are overselling their case when they talk about how precisely they're able to, to eliminate deleterious genes or change genes. But it, there, I think they're quite right that there are, there are uh, a number of genetic diseases that are uh, of known cause. We know where the gene is. We know what allele it is that's causing the problem. And under some cases, um, if you have got a fetus that has got the, del the the bad allele, it can be fixed. So the idea that we would just write this technology off and say we can't ever do it seems to me a non-starter. On the other hand, it raises an incredibly long list of very troubling questions that have to do with um, who is it who gets to say um, how, how this stuff is regulated? Who is it who gets to say whether it's safe or not? Who is it that's going to evaluate how precisely these technologies are going to be used? Are we comfortable moving into an era in which wealthy people get their babies' genes fixed and poor people don't, and so on? So it really is a very, very difficult debate for us to have. Um, and unfortunately, it comes about at a time where I think we our ability to have these sorts of debates about biotech policy has been greatly undermined by the biotech fights we've had over the last 20 years. One of the things that I've written about is that an awful lot of the molecular biologists who should be playing a key role in this debate, uh, hopefully um, with some objective perspective on things, a lot of them have been radicalized in the last few decades of, of GMO fights. Um, and so they're really, they're not the people that we could turn to for a balanced view of the, of the pros and cons. Um, and I was particularly troubled by the a recent book by Jennifer Dudna, who is one of the leaders in developing this technology. And she's written a book for the public um, called Crack and Creation. And she's also, in, in this she tackles, she, she claims to be tackling some of these difficult issues, like things like, you know, is this eugenics? Um, and is that something we should be concerned about? 
And what troubles me is that she clearly wants to take the whole eugenics issue off the table uh, by pretending to deal with it and then dismissing it. Um, and she describes eugenics as something that was unfortunately, you know, misused in the past and it was used by the Nazis and so on. But she goes on to say that we scientists have to make sure that in the future, these sort of evil bureaucrats don't use these technologies that way. And in doing that, she is completely misconstruing the history of eugenics. There's been a lot written on this, and she and other biologists need to read it. Um, in fact, some of it's come out from bio from uh, biologists, like my uh, like my colleague here at Washington University, Garland Allen, who's been one of the leading um, historians of, of genetics. But these people are misconstruing the history of genetics, uh, the, the history of eugenics. Eugenics was actually led by scientists in the early 20th century. So this whole idea that we, that we have to hope that the scientists will keep evil bureaucrats from, uh, evil bureaucrats from, um, ever misusing the sort of capabilities of CRISPR, um, is exactly the sort of, uh, misreading of science that, uh, that troubles me. Um, so that's what bothers me about CRISPR, not the, not the technology itself. It's just how corrupted the, the debate that we're going to have is bound to be. Well, that's very interesting, but very sobering. Thank you very much, Glenn. Makes me want to go get a drink. I don't know about you. <laughs> and thank you for listening. You've just listened to Glenn Davis Stone in Tech Debuts. Thank you.